Welcome to Dirt NC, where we talk all about the places and spaces of North Carolina and the people who make them awesome. I'm your host, Jed Byrne. Throughout my career in real estate development, finance, commercial brokerage, engineering, and construction, I have covered just about all facets of the real estate and land use ecosystem. This show is an opportunity to not only share what I've learned with you, but to also introduce you to my friends who are doing truly transformative work and sharing their stories. With each episode of Dirt NC, my goal is simple. I want you to walk away learning something new about land use. I promise to keep it simple and straight to the point. If you ever have any questions for me, feel free to reach out on Twitter at OakCityCRE. Now let's jump in. So today, as part of the Real Estate 101 series, I'm going to give you a basic rundown of the real estate development process uh, basics. So again, we're going to cover a lot of things real quickly. These are just the basics, and this process is really targeted more towards a um, development product that would be for rent. So that's office commercial that is residential for rent, multifamily, what have you. But this is really not a a build and sell or develop and sell model. This would be really more thinking about a development project that would ultimately be for rent. Again, these are the basics, so I'm going to cover things at a very high level. And uh, one important thing to note is there are some legal things that are going to come up during this conversation. I'm not a lawyer. If you ever have any questions about anything legally or law related, uh, make sure you speak to an attorney. I am not an attorney. This is for informational purposes only. So take everything I say here with a grain of salt. If you ever have any questions about anything that I'm going over here, you can always reach out to me on Twitter at OakCityCRE or send me an email at OakCityCRE at gmail.com to let me know what you would like to learn more about or what you have questions about. And I'd be happy to kind of fill in the details uh, if I can. So today, I'm going to go through, again, rental development process basics. There's kind of three main buckets, the concept and iteration phase, the gathering resources and contracting phase, and then there's the lease-up and operations phase. At the end, I'm going to quickly talk about some of the risks in development, because I think that's an important topic to talk about. And um, again, just remember, these are basics, and uh, this will be pretty high level, but I hope this will answer some of the questions I've heard about people not really understanding the process of how a development comes together. So the first bucket is what I'm calling concept and iteration. And so this is where you're really coming up with the idea, refining the idea, and and you'll end up with an idea that is feasible. So you have a a project, a development project that should work and uh, makes financial sense. So the first step here is ideation. And really, you're going to have kind of one of two scenarios. You're going to have a use that's looking for a site or a site that's looking for a use. And what I mean by that is typically a project starts off with someone who says, hey, I want to build multifamily. So you have a use. And now you're going to go out and you're going to look for a site that is best suited for that use. Uh, the other option would be, hey, I've got this site. There's this piece of land on Maine and Maine that I think would make a great development. Then the question becomes, what is the best use for that site? So what is the highest and best use to develop that site? that it would be a site looking for a use. And typically a development project is going to fall into one of those two buckets. Use looking for a site or a site looking for a use. That's true for ground-up development, redevelopment, and adaptive reuse. The next phase, once you have a site idea and a use idea, is to go through kind of the value creation and iteration phase. And so the way value is created in real estate development is through financial return, right? So You buy a piece of land, you make a financial investment, you build something, you invest money into the site, and then you're going to have an asset that you can rent or lease out. 
and that is going to give you a financial return. And so one of the kind of tenets of real estate development is if you don't have the rents, you can't do the deal. And what I mean by that is if a if you build a building and you can't get the rents to support that financial investment, the deal doesn't work. And so there's really only two levers that you can control there. There's the rent piece and then there's the cost piece. When I say controlling rents, you got to remember that that a developer can't set the rents. The market sets the allowable rents for a perceived value. And so when I say increase rents, if you run the numbers on a project and your returns don't make sense, you can try to change the concept plan or the idea in such a way that it increases the value of the property. So again, you cannot just say, oh, well, I need $50 per square foot office rents for this deal that makes sense. Because in Raleigh, there's no project that has been able to achieve $50 per square foot. You may be able to figure out a way to set the top of market rents, but that's pretty difficult. The market really kind of tells you where the top of market rents are. And so you can invest more money into the project to make the amenities nicer, the finishes nicer, have some sort of feature or benefit, raise the value proposition so the rents go up. But typically with that, the costs also go up. So there, there's kind of a, a balance between investment and returns that you're trying to achieve. So you can adjust or can work on the rent side of the equation. You can also work on the cost side. If you can achieve the same value for a lower cost, you're going to improve that ratio of rents to cost. Again, if you can't achieve the rents for a project, you can't do the deal. So those are the two kind of components of financial feasibility at the basic level. The next bucket in the development process is going to be the gathering resources and contracting phase. And so at the end of this, th these items are not in order. Uh, they kind of can go on in parallel some, and then the orders can be switched around, but all these kind of things need to happen before you get to a finished product. You're going to go through site control, capital, design, construction, legal, and then ultimately you're going to wind up with a completed building. And so site control, what do I mean by that? If you are going to do a project, you need to have a site. And so uh, if you're purchasing that site, you're going to go through kind of two phases. One is the letter of intent phase, LOI. The second is the purchase and sale agreement. So the LOI is a non-binding agreement that you send to the seller, either through you or the broker that you're working with. It basically just outlines the terms. Again, it's a, it's a letter. It's a non-binding agreement that just says, hey, I want to purchase this piece of property. Here's how much I want to pay. Here's how long I need for due diligence. Uh, here's how long it's going to take me to close and kind of on down the line. Again, non-binding agreement, but this is establishing the basic terms of negotiation. The LOI gets negotiated, eventually it'll get signed, and then you can move on to the next phase, which is the purchase and sale agreement, or the PSA. In that, you're really going to line out all of the details of the purchase. You're going to talk about, you know, here's the documentation I'm going to need from you as the seller for my due diligence. Here's what I need to do uh, to work on the property to investigate if it's going to work for my needs. Uh, and, and you're going to literally list out, I mean, this is a contract. So this is a fully detailed contractually binding agreement. This is where you get the attorneys involved and that will line, outline how you're going to close on the property. Another phase in the gathering resources and contracting bucket is going to be capital. So it's kind of two pieces to the capital bucket, equity and debt. Equity is, uh, cash that you are bringing to the deal either through yourself or with partners. And then debt is loan that you're going to get from a lender like a bank or another financial institution. So a typical arrangement would be for a million dollars in property, you're going to bring 25% equity, which is $250,000. And then you're going to get a loan for $750,000 for the total cost of a million that you're going to purchase that property for. Typically developers don't provide all of the equity. They're going to find a financial partner 
on the equity side who's going to bring in a lot of the capital. Sometimes it's 99%, sometimes it's 100%, sometimes it's 90 sometimes it's 50-50. There's all sorts of different arrangements. But again, the developer is bringing the idea and the value and the expertise, and some, there's typically uh, financial partners who are willing to provide capital but don't have the, all those other things. So it's kind of a trade-off. And then you go to a, a financial institution like a bank and get a loan for the rest, and that's the debt portion. With equity, oftentimes part of that trade-off with a developer and their equity partners is also a, a piece of sweat equity or promoted interest, which means that they're going to actually wind up owning more than the financial capital that they contribute. So if the developer contributes 10% of the equity, they might wind up negotiating to own 25% of the equity in the projects because their financial partner will give them a promoted interest that says, hey, if you do this and you do this well, you'll maintain a larger ownership than you pay for, essentially, because you're paying for it through the sweat equity piece, which is your efforts and your expertise. The value that you're bringing to the table exceeds the financial value, and so therefore you're compensated for that. And that's sweat equity or promoted interest. And the last kind of line I have here is is a lot of times folks, when they're talking about development, they say, well, I don't have I don't have millions of dollars. I don't have all this money. You know, I can't be a developer. And one of my favorite lines from the um, Incremental Development Alliance is this kind of concept of, well, do you have all the two-by-fours? So capital is really just one of many resources needed to do a development deal. And so when you go to plan a project, typically, you know, you don't have the designs completed. You don't have the site purchased. You don't have two-by-fours sitting in your backyard ready to start building the project. You don't have cement. You don't have drywall. You don't have nails. You don't have all of the resources. I mean, there's most of the things you don't have, but you're going to go out and get them. So it's the same with capital. You've got to go acquire the capital to do the project, and that's done through negotiation and partnering and signing on to loans and debt. So again, on, on the debt piece, one other piece that really needs to be considered as a developer is typically... Because you're bringing the expertise, because you are the one who understands the deal better than anybody else, when it comes time to sign personal guarantees for the loan, which the bank is often going to require that says, hey, we're going to lend you $750,000 on this million-dollar project to build the thing, but if something goes wrong, if the value doesn't turn out to be accurate, you propose the value proposition, right? You say, we're going to build this, and it's going to be worth $1.2 million. Well, if that turns out not to be true, you've got to guarantee that you will pay back this loan. And so again, that's the, the guarantee or, or the contingent liability of the loan. And typically, the person who's responsible for that is the developer. So again, they may bring in 10% of the equity, which is $25,000 in this million-dollar project, but they're going to be responsible for $750,000 of liability. So again, it's a highly leveraged and risky scenario where the developer is saying, yes, I believe in this idea. Yes, I can make this thing happen, and I'm going to personally guarantee that. So it's contingent liability because... You're liable only if things go wrong. And so, again, that's a big part of the risk of development is that if something goes wrong, the developer's on the hook, not the equity partner. Oftentimes, sometimes they are, but typically it's always the developer who is on the hook to repay that loan, which would be 75% of the total cost of the project. The next bucket would be design. And so there's two types of design in the development process. There's the site design and the building design. The site design, you're going to work with an engineering firm to lay out the site, to lay out the parking, to lay out landscaping, and bring that site to an approved process. So again, if you know you're going to build a building, uh, multifamily, uh, or, or commercial, 
you're going to have to say, okay, well, here's where that site needs to go. The engineers are going to know where the setbacks are, how far back it has to sit from the road, how far back it has to sit from other sites. Um, they're going to have to go through lighting, all these different aspects of the site design, and that has to be approved by the city. You might also need a rezoning or a change of use, which just means, yes, you can build, uh, or if you want to build an office building on a site that was previously a um, industrial site, you're going to need sometimes to have that property rezoned. So that's, again, a, an administrative process that you go through with the city that says, I'm going to change the zoning of this site from A to B. And you're going to need uh, a site design to go through that process. Same thing with change of use. If you have an existing building and it was um, an industrial use and you want to use change it to office, a lot of times you're going to need new parking arrangements. And so, again, all of that stuff needs to get approval. If in Raleigh we have a Unified Development Ordinance, or UDO, and if you want to do something on your site or you want to make a project work but it doesn't quite fit all the requirements of the UDO, there's also something you can do called a variance, which would mean, hey, the UDO requires that I have 150 parking spaces for my office building. I can only fit 145. You can apply to the city for a variance, and they can say, yep, you don't meet the code, but we're going to allow it. That's a variance, and so you'll get approval for your 145 spaces instead of 150. And at the end of the site design, you're going to wind up with what's called entitlements. So you've got a project that is approved to be built. So yes, the site was zoned for office. Yes, you want to build an office, but now you have a set of plans for the site that will actually, that are allowed to be built. And that's the city saying, if you build this, we will approve it. We will let you open and operate this office building or this multifamily project. And those are, that means the site is entitled for what you intend to do. That's different than zoning. Zoning just says what you can do there. Entitlements say, this is actually what you're going to build. And if you build it, we will let you get a certificate of occupancy, and we approve that ahead of time. On the building side, that's where you're going to get your architects involved. So they're designing the building envelope and everything inside. And so that includes MEP uh, designers often. That includes interior designers often. And this ends up with permits, so building permits to actually construct the building. The MEP engineers are your mechanical, electrical, and plumbing. So those are your main building systems. Interior design or interior architects are going to design the interior of, of your commercial building, either for the end user or for tenants. And uh, the outside architect is going to design the entire building. Sometimes you'll also have a landscape architect involved, and those uh, design consultants will typically work for the architect. So they will be sub-consultants to the architect. The next phase and the last phase is going to be construction. So this is actually getting the thing built. In order to get the thing built, you have the plans, you have it approved, you have the site, you have everything you need, you've got your capital, you're going to need to get the thing built. So you're going to need a general contractor. That contractor is the person that you were going to have a contract with. And so typically a general contractor is in charge of managing a bunch of subcontractors who work on the site work, plumbing, electrical, mechanical, fire sprinkler, tile, paint, all the different aspects of the construction are managed by the general contractor. In that contract, there are kind of many different ways and aspects of, of getting that contract legally written up. Uh, again, I'm not an attorney. I'm not a lawyer. So if you have contracting questions, contact an attorney. One of the ways to do this for a general contractor is a guaranteed max price. So again, this is a, a scope, schedule, and fee provided by the contractor to the developer as a contract it says we're going to build this scope of work. We're not going to do these certain items. Those are still your responsibility, developer. We're going to do it in this amount of time, and we're going to do it for this amount of cost. And a, a GMP, or Guaranteed Max Price Contract, is one that says we're not going to exceed this price. So again, in our project, if it's a million dollars, 
in land, maybe it's a you know five million dollar total project. That's four million dollars for the the building. They say it's going to cost no more than four million dollars, and typically a, a contractor is incentivized to find savings. Right, they're the expert in getting something built. So you want to incentivize them to find savings, and you can do that through a cost sharing or cost splitting mechanism. So again, the contractor says, "Here's you know, if I build these plans in this amount of time." It's going to cost me no more than $4 million, and that's your guaranteed maximum price. That allows you to go to your lender and say, hey, this total project is going to be $5 million and no more. If the project runs over, if there's overages and cost in a guaranteed max price contract, the contractor's responsibility is responsible for those, so they're highly incentivized not to go over in price. Another option would just be a fixed price contract where the contractor says, I'm going to do this scope of work in this amount of time for this price, $4 million. If there's savings, the contractor keeps them all. If there's overages, the contractor eats them all. So again, the developer just knows they want to to reduce the risk of how much this project is going to cost. And again, that's the expertise of the contractor, not the developer. And that's why they're being hired. Lastly, uh, there's the legal aspect of the development process, which really kind of falls into two things. There's land use attorneys and there's business attorneys. And so, um, so a lot of times land use attorneys, they know the ordinances and codes and all of the uh, legal municipal documents that are required for you to do what you want to do within a city. And so your land use attorney is, is kind of in charge of all the things that have to do with the land on the legal side. There's also typically going to be some business attorneys involved so that when you um, create a business entity or a partnership for the equity, let's say, right? So you're creating a new business to do this development. An LLC is very typical limited liability corporation. So you're going to form that entity and there are going to be agreements and operating agreements that you have with your partners that say, okay, you're going to bring 90% of the equity. I'm going to provide 10. Here are the arrangements for that. Here's what you owe me. Here's what I owe you. Here's what happens if things go wrong. Here's what that happens if things go right. So again, that's a business entity attorney who's going to help you kind of formalize all the documents required on the business side to get the development complete. Now you've got your land, you've got your designs, you've got your approvals, you've got your contract for the general contract, you've got the building built, right? They've done what they've said they're going to do. You've paid them. Everything's done. The building is complete. It's approved by the city. You have your certificate of occupancy. The next phase is going to be lease up and operations. So again, a, a commercial building or a multifamily residential building is only, in this context, valuable if it is cash flowing, if there's rents coming in the door. So you've spent this money, you've made this big investment. Now you want to start seeing cash flow. You want to start seeing some returns. So you're going to get some rents to do that. You need tenants on the commercial side or multifamily side. You're going to lease to individuals or companies on the commercial side. It's a bit more uh, complicated because you oftentimes are negotiating the size of the lease in square footage. You're negotiating how long it's going to be the term, the rate commissions, concessions, all sorts of things. So again, if, if, you have an office tenant coming into a building, a lot of that stuff is negotiable, right? They're going to tell you how much space they need. They're going to tell you how long they want to lease it for. You're going to negotiate, well, if it's a longer lease, the the rate might be slightly lower. If it's a shorter lease, the rate might be slightly higher. You're going to pay commissions to brokers who are going to bring the tenants, uh, and you're going to oftentimes negotiate concessions, right? So if they sign a really long lease, maybe they get six months of free rent. Or if they have to move from another space and their lease doesn't end for another six months, maybe that first six months is free, while they're kind of occupying both space. Um, multifamily side, there's much less negotiation, right? So you come to an apartment building, 
they have a unit. You either want it or you don't. You don't get to say, well, I really want you to move the kitchen over here, or I'd really like a second closet. I mean, there's there's very little negotiation, which makes that process simpler um, than the commercial side. Also, in a new development, you're going to have tenant upfits on the commercial side. So when a building's built, it's typically an empty shell, and you're going to have to say, okay, well, I'm building out this 5,000 square feet of office space, and here's how much it's going to cost. That's an additional investment above the building that the developer often has to make. And that's part of the negotiation with the tenant where they're going to say, okay, it's going to cost $80 a square foot. I, the landlord and developer will pay for 50 of that, but you tenant are going to have to make up the other $30 per square foot of that cost or, you know, a third of the cost. So everybody has some kind of skin in the game. Again, that's all part of the negotiations on a second generation space. That means the initial tenant has moved out. A new tenant wants to come in on the commercial side, there's often still typically a lot of negotiation because they're, the new tenant is going to want to change the space. Unlike the multifamily side where there's no negotiation, they may add some offices. They may demolish some offices. They may add a break room. They may expand the conference room. They may change the arrangement of the space. Again, that's in second generation. And there's going to need to be some additional tenant upfit dollars put back into the space. So, so retenanting in commercial space is a lot more expensive than in multifamily. And at the end of the day, in this leasing and operations, the value created is really based on net operating income, which is revenue minus expenses. So if you can operate your building in such a way that you can maximize revenue and minimize operating expenses, you're going to maximize the value created in your development project. Now, lastly, real quick, I want to talk about risks. So development is a very risky in industry as a whole, and there's all types of risks. So the developer's main job is creating an idea, creating a concept, executing on the plan. But throughout that, they're trying to mitigate risks wherever possible. And so those risks can be time, financial, market, uncertainty, opportunity, environmental, rezoning and entitlement risks, and lease-up risks. So time is just, oftentimes you have no idea how long it's going to take. Some things could go relatively quickly. Some things could take a lot longer. You could have construction disruptions. You can have global pandemics. All sorts of things are very um, risky on the time front, right? And, and you just don't know how long things are going to take. And that's complicated and risky. So you have to build cushion. You have to build that risk into your project. The next thing is financial, right? So interest rates change. There might be capital calls. You may have to invest more money than you thought. You may have to go back to your partners and, and raise more money. You have to get more debt. There's all sorts of financial risks uh, that are part of the project. So again, the idea is to look forward and use your experience to say, here's where the big risks are and here's how I'm going to mitigate those risks. Market risks, right? So rental rates change up or down sometimes. Sometimes there's a bunch of extra space in the market. And so it's harder to lease. Sometimes there's a lot less space available in the market or a big tenant or a big company or some big growth aspect happens. And so the market fluctuates. And because of that, there's inherent risk in development. Uncertainty is all sorts of things, right? You just look out into the future and you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or six months or years down the line. And development usually takes a long time. So you might have to be looking three or five years into the future when you're at your initial concept and feasibility stage. So there's a lot of uncertainty looking out into the future. Um, opportunity risk is something like you make a decision, and once you make that decision, there's the opportunity cost and risk associated with what other options you could have pursued that you can no longer pursue. So every time you make a decision, you're kind of narrowing down your options and you're reducing your options, and so there's opportunity risk. Environmental is pretty straightforward, right? What happened on the site before? Was there some sort of chemical spill or is there something going on that you're unaware of? If you're doing a redevelopment, do you find that there's asbestos in the building or lead-based paint? There's all sorts of environmental risks that you kind of discover ideally before you purchase the property, but sometimes it happens down the line 
And so there's a large amount of environmental risk in development. Rezoning and entitlement risk, again, that's a process, a negotiation with the city that you're going for approvals, and sometimes it goes smoothly, and sometimes it doesn't. If you're asking for a rezoning, sometimes it gets denied. So you have this whole plan in place for a project, and then you don't uh, get the approvals that you need, and you're not allowed to do it. And so there's a huge risk in trying to pursue those approvals, entitlements, and rezoning. And then finally, lease-up risk, right? So you may be able to lease up an office building to a single tenant. It happens really quickly. That may happen very early in the process. You may have that tenant going into the development process. Or you have to build in a lot of time and buffer into your schedule and into your financial model that says, well, maybe the lease-up is going to take 12 months, 18 months, 24 months. And the longer it takes, the more costly it is. And so, again, there's a lot of risk there. I hope this helps. Again, these are just the basics of the development process. I've heard these questions a lot, so I wanted to kind of cover at a high level. If you have questions or if you would like any follow-up, please reach out on Twitter at Oak City CRE. Um, but again, the, the main buckets are the concept and iteration phase. So you're going to come up with an idea, test it, iterate, fix it, change it, update it so that you get the best possible site and or use. Uh, again, you're looking typically for... Uh, a site with a use or you're looking for a use that's looking for a site the next bucket is gathering resources and contracting that's where you you pull together all the things you're going to need for the development you wind up with a contract and you build the building then there's the lease up and operations so again you're creating value by filling the building with tenants at optimal rental rates and keeping your uh, operational expenses in line and then at the end of the day development is a very very risky business so i wanted to make sure we covered some of those risks As always, I'm so grateful that you have chosen to share this time with me. If you ever have any questions about Dirt NC or any land use related issues, you can reach out to me on Twitter at OakCityCRE. Also, if you're looking for a simple and straight to the point weekly update on commercial development in Raleigh, you can subscribe to my newsletter at www.OakCityCRE.com. Until next time, thank you.